0: We open God's holy word this morning to Exodus chapter 32. Our text has already been read. We'll be looking today at Exodus 32 verses 1 through 6. In the immediate context, Moses is up on the mountain. Receiving the law and the covenant from the Lord. And the people are down below waiting for Moses to return from on top of the mountain. As we look back in the history of Israel up to this point, God had done glorious things for His people. He had prepared Moses to lead his people out of the bondage of Egyptian slavery. God has, had worked His mighty power and sovereignty in the plagues which He brought upon Egypt. Thereby He was manifesting His, His own glory to Pharaoh and to Egypt and to all of Israel as well. He had delivered and saved the firstborn of Israel from the death angel who passed over, saving his people figuratively by the blood that depicted the blood of Christ that was to come. He had miraculously saved his people while killing all of the firstborn of Egypt who had no blood upon the doorpost. He had miraculously delivered his people at the Red Sea by powerfully and uh, gloriously parting the Red Sea, killing the Egyptian army and allowing the children of Israel to pass into the promised land, uh, on their way to the promised land, even on dry ground. Now the Lord was giving to Moses His very law and all the stipulations of the covenant to His very people that would be the wisdom and understanding that they were to live by for years and years to come. And in doing so, at this very moment, God was working with Moses. He was working with the people of Israel, preparing them to inherit the land. The promises that were given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were being filled right before them. So, what in the world was going on in the hearts of the people? What were they thinking about? When they cried out, make us gods that will go before us. Where were their hearts? Well, no doubt they had been influenced by the spirit of the age. Think of this for a moment. Not only was there idolatry throughout the land of Canaan where they were going, but there was also idolatry in Egypt. Remember, they had been there for 400 years before they were delivered. And much of that time, they were influenced, albeit very subtly by the practices and by the idolatry of these Egyptians. And even though they had seen God work miraculously, they were aware of the promises that were made to them. Here they were, waiting for Moses to come down. And because he delayed, they desired some visible manifestation of God that they might find solace in. No doubt, in all probability anyway, they were thinking about the Egyptian bull god, Apis. This was a god of fertility. He was a god that was worshipped through feasts and festivals, also involving all types of immorality. They thought about this God that was worshipped in Egypt and this God that was worshipped throughout the land of Canaan. And they desired a visible manifestation of God. And it says there in our text, simply because Moses was delayed in coming down, their hearts, their minds looked to other gods and they cried out, Make us gods. Up to this point, Moses had been upon the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. But God was not working according to the timetable that Israel desired. They wanted him to work now. In this text this morning, I want us to see three things that can cause us to lead us to go astray in our faith. I'm going to hang these three points on three words, and they are impatience, addition, and immorality. First of all, impatience. The children of Israel were impatient. They wanted God to be with them, to work with them directly right then and right now. But you know, seldom does God work just when we think He needs to work. A day is with a thousand years, is like a thousand years unto the Lord and a thousand years like a day. God never gets in a hurry. But yet God is always on time. He works according to His perfect plan, His perfect program. And yet the children of Israel took their eyes completely off the Lord and they cried out, Make us gods that may go before us. Oh boy, what were they thinking? I thought of the words of Genesis chapter 12 when God called the, the father Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and He gave them this promise. He said in Genesis chapter 12, as He spoke to Abraham, Abram, that he was to get out of his country from his family and from his father's house to a land that I will show you, saith the Lord. And He said, I will make unto you a great nation. I, the Sovereign Lord, I am the one who will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. God's absolute promise that He would go before His people, that He would establish His people, that He would bless His people just because of His sovereign desire to do so. And then in Genesis chapter 13, in verse 15... The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had, had departed, For all this land which you see, I give to you and your descendants. And I will make your descendants as dust on the earth, so that if any man can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. And he says to Abram, Arise and walk in the land, look at its length and its breadth. And he said to Abram, I will give this unto you. God was working. God made His promises to the children of Israel. And then in Exodus chapter 20, the chapter that reveals God giving His very moral law to the children of Israel. The first words that God spoke to His people in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2 He said these very words. He said, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God. The sovereign Lord alone was the one who brought His people out of bondage. He was the one that promised over and over, that had been reiterated time and time again to the children of Israel, that I am with you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. By my hand, by my decree, I have promised this, you this land, and I will go with you. And yet, simply because Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and that delay... They cried out, make us gods that they might go before us after all of these promises that were made to them. And we look back at these people and we think, wow! (laughs) What were they thinking about? Yeah, as Pastor Ryan shared this morning, we should not be so naive to think That we are not influenced as well by the gods of this age. The things of this world that come in and detract us, that would lead us astray. And sometimes the very thing that leads us astray is our impatience or our lack of trust before the Lord. We may have some burning desire in our heart that we want to see God do. And if God doesn't act just the way we suppose that he might ought to act, we get discouraged and down. But we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. I think of the Lord's words to His disciples in John chapter 14. Jesus made His disciples as He makes us the very promise from John chapter 14. He says to His own children, His own people, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. Just as God had promised to the children of Israel that He was going to go and prepare a place for them, that He was going to lead His children, they looked to other gods. They turned away. They doubted. Do we do do the same thing sometimes? Do we look at other things? Do we take our eyes off the Lord and doubt for just even a fleeting moment? That He has indeed promised a place for us? That because we are His children and we are called to walk in a land of exile for just a little time before we see Him in all of His glory? Would we doubt? Would we come, do we become complacent? Do we become impatient? And look at these other things. By not trusting and keeping our eyes on the Lord. Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will. He says, I will go before you, children of Israel. I will prepare a place for you. He says the same thing to us. I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you shall be also. Do we trust this? That He is truly thinking about us. That our names are written in heaven. That nothing can take us out of the Father's hands. And He is surely preparing a place for us. And someday He's going to come and receive us unto Himself and then we shall ever be with the Lord. We await that glory. But while we're here, we're called to trust Him. Even during those dry times. You remember Jesus told the The parable uh, sometimes it's referred to as the two servants or the faithful servant. And Jesus said, um, Who is that servant to whom his master has given to him the task to feed the other servants and take care of the other servants while the master is gone? Blessed is that servant that when his master returns, he finds that servant doing what his master had told him to do. And he, when he does that, he says, Blessed you, enter into my kingdom and the joy of the Lord. But he says also, to, what if that servant, because his master is delayed, he becomes impatient. And what does he do? Well, he he takes his eyes off of the goodness and the kindness of his master. And he begins to eat, and he begins to become drunk, and he begins to even beat his other servants. Well, the Lord said that that master will come on a day when he thinks not, and he will bring a judgment upon that servant, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that God would judge those who do not trust in Him. You see? Depicting the fact that there was probably never... No faith at all in that latter servant because his faith was not a faith that trusted and believed and persevered and lived out his faith, but rather he turned over to the things of this world and judgment came. Judgment came because he did not doubt. The second servant was indeed like the one who made a profession but turned away. There was too much waiting. And as the Scripture says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so does this unbeliever. As the sow, the pig, returns to its wallowing in the mire. That's what happens. They went out from us because they were never of us. They didn't believe. They didn't persevere. They didn't trust. And they became impatient and fell into drunkenness. (coughs) anger beatings their servants and did not believe and persevere to the end. We get in trouble brothers and sisters when we don't trust God and what He's doing. That He's working in our lives. That He's with us. He's promised He'd never never leave us and forsake us. He knows exactly this minute, this day, what we're going through. He knows what we need better than we know what we need. And His timetable is perfect. He's never late. He's working in our lives. Be aware to not be impatient with the Lord. And then secondly, we need to be aware that we ought not to try to add anything at all to our faith. Look here in our text in in Exodus 32. Concerning the making of this golden calf, there's a lot of questions. Were they making this calf in an, in an attempt to find a totally different God to worship because they had totally lost all faith in the true God, Yahweh? Or were they trying to construct some image of God so that they might be able to look at this image and retain their faith in God? Well, no doubt, whatever they did was committing all-out idolatry and as well breaking of the second commandment to, hold, to have no graven image before them. Well, Aaron in verse 5, we look at Exodus chapter 32 in verse 5, no doubt Aaron was definitely trying to bring into this picture the true Lord God. So he says in verse 5, after he saw this golden calf, which by the way, he had constructed at the request of the children of Israel and they cried out in horrendous blasphemous terms in verse 4 this is your god o israel that brought you brought you out of the land of egypt despite the fact that it was the lord god alone who brought them out they needed to no know one to take the place of Him. They needed no representation of Him because the Scripture says we can liken Him unto nothing else. So Aaron says in verse 5, So when Aaron saw the calf, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. You see? Yes, we have this calf... But along with this calf and this this idol that's in your minds, we also need to worship the Lord here as well, you see. So he was combining uh, the worship of this false idol, this false god, along with the worship of the one true God. And you know, it's a very subtle temptation that we all face today whether subtly or rather, or whether blatantly, that we are tempted to add something to our faith. There's something else out there that that we might need. Well, don't think that you're so wise that you may not get caught up in this. Um, you know, this. There's no limit to what we could think about of things that add to our faith. You know, we've. We've got the apocryphal books that people read when they're not really the Word of God. Uh, People bring in voodoo along with the worship of Christianity. Besides Christ, we think that we can add the the legalistic requirements of do this and don't do that. And these waves of legalism puff up the flesh and make us think that we're holy when we're not, when we're just Obeying a few commandments, when in reality, we're not obeying the Lord. We can get steeped in some type of mystical experience where we feel that we are communicating with God, and yet sometimes this experience is contrary to the Word of God, which clearly indicates that this mystical experience is not of God. You see, people so oftentimes look for this, this the, the bizarre. You know, there, there, there must be something out there besides the Lord, the Lord Christ, that will give me pleasure. For the church at Colossae, they were taking their eyes off the Lord, and they had begun to worship angels as well as uh, the surrounding districts. In this day and age, it was uh, the New Age movement. You know what the New Age movement is? Essentially, it was the movement of the oneness of everything. In other words, God is, is not the, the definitive creator and everything that lies beneath is the creation, but rather God and the creation and his, all the people in the world are somehow assimilated in this one glorious unity. It's, there's really nothing new about this New Age movement. It's... It's nothing more than the old pantheistic idea that God is in everything. We do not believe that God is in everything. We believe that God is present everywhere. But this new teaching, which is no new teaching, is saying that God is in everything. God is is in this pulpit, in this wood. God is in the trees. God is in the water, you see. Everything is unified in this thought that the earth itself is God and that God is not distinct from His creation. So they worship and serve the created beings, the creation, rather than the Creator. They mold it all into one. That's very popular today. That's it's very popular among, uh, in Hollywood. We see much of this type of worship today. For the Galatians, it was to fall back under the law. Yes, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we think it's also very important as Jews that we continue in the keeping of the law, the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the Word of God. And what did Paul say to that? He said, If any other man Preach any other gospel besides that which I have delivered unto you. Let him be accursed. And he also said to that church in Galatia, I, am, I, am, I just marvel at the fact that you are so soon turned, turning away from he who called you in the grace of Christ. You've turned away from the glorious gospel of grace to return again under the law. Could we not say the same thing to the children of Israel? That God was... <laughs> amazed that they had turned away, that Moses was absolutely amazed that they had turned away from the Lord so quickly when they had seen the glorious manifestation of God and heard all of the promises of God and knew that God was faithful. And yet they turned to this stupid idols in the hope that they might find some consolation from that. Well, again, we could go on and on and on thinking about the the many things that we foolishly try to add to our faith. But there's one thing today, brothers and sisters, that I think is the most serious thing that Christians are tempted to add to their faith today. And it it is this age of secularism that we live in today. Now that word secular used to be a word that was quite benign, a harmless term. It simply referred to this particular age that we live in, in time and space. It was in contrast to the eternal, okay? The temporal time. That's, that's, that's all the word sacred meant. And it was used in that way. You know, Augustine wrote the city of God the secularists might write a book called The City of Man. It was a manward aspect rather than a Godward eternal aspect. But when people think about secular or secularism today, it's a much more hostile scene. Today secularism is, a, is really in a sense a philosophy that teaches this, that life is to be lived in the here and the now apart from eternity. And if you have this pie in the sky kind of thoughts and you're you're wrong, you're deceived. Athanasius was given a title when he sought to be faithful to the Lord. Athanasius, Contra Mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. I think he had it right, that we are at war with the things of this world. Because what did John say? That everything that is in the world is the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. But yet the true secularist is against the eternal things of God. He is against the spiritual. His life and his philosophy coincides with that which is natural. The manward, the horizontal, and he says that's all there is. And if you think contrary to this, well, then you're wrong. So it was Francis Schaeffer who coined the term secular humanism. Secular humanism. Now, when we think about the humanities, for example, that we there's nothing wrong with studying the humanities. The the, the humanities were simply art, literature, English, languages as opposed to the scientific studies. But no, the secular humanist goes farther than that. And he says that there is no word from the divine realm. All that matters is the here and now, and that you live as men as if there was no God. If there was no word from the divine, if there was no word from heaven, then if, there, if indeed there was no absolute truth, then what should we conclude? That life has absolutely no meaning. We would become nihilist. There's no meaning at all in the world. And that was, in a sense, Nitschke's uh, philosophy. He believed in nothingness. That was his conclusion of all of his studies. That life is meaningless... And that's okay. It's okay that life has no meaning whatsoever. And he coined the phrase and the teaching that God is dead. He said we, we are simply just to go on in the horizon without any thoughts of God, spit in the face of eternity, and live your way. By the way, he, he went totally mad. He lost his total sense of all his mental, mental faculties at the age of 44. And for the next 11 years of his life, he had to be cared for by his mother until she died and, and then his sister. <laughs> That's what you get if there's nothing. Jean Paul Sartre said that life is no value. Life is nauseous. Albert Camus says this. He says, life is absurd. We ought to live our life, just ignore any, anything at all about truth or absolutes or death or eternity. He said, just forget about it. Life is meaningless. And just walk through life. Whistle in the midst of the graveyards. Deny everything. You know, it, it's amazing to me again, that we would be very naive to think that the voices of secularism do not speak to us today. For example, in a span of less than 10 years, as a whole, passed down from Congress, that now we have accepted homosexual marriage as the law of the land. I'm not even sure that would have happened 10 years ago. You see how fast secularism is changing? And and I look around this past week and I see all of these demonstrations and riots that are going on across the country because our new president has been inaugurated into office. And I certainly understand that he has done things in the past that are sinful, that are certainly not upright, things that were wrong. But you see, we, we are seeing a great demonstration rioting because of their love for the extreme leftist positions. Again, I'm not saying that Trump is totally completely right. I'm saying, look look at what they're angry about. They're angry that the left, the feminists, the, the nature worshippers, or whoever they are, they're afraid. The things are going to be taken for, away from him. Some of them. Some of them have been interviewed and they don't even know what they're rioting about or why they're demonstrating. The, the point is, though, how is it that we as a nation can see so much turmoil over this and very little about true moral things that matter the most? They've just been accepted. We are living in a day when a secular mindset is beginning to take over this nation. And yet it offers so little to us. Yes, Solomon in Ecclesiastes also said that life indeed is meaningless. It is a chasing after the wind. It is vanity of vanities. Everything that's done under the sun, he says, is like this. It is of no value if you see this horizontal plane that we live on as a life that's totally, completely apart from God. Yes, there is no understanding of life. And by the way, all these liberal theologians, these liberal philosophers that said all these negative, mundane uh depressing things. Why did they come to that conclusion? Well, they threw the Word of God out the door. They said that this is not a reliable source. It is not an infallible uh, book of faith and practice. No wonder they all went crazy. You know? We have a more sure word from God. Solomon goes on to say, though yet in this horizontal plane that we live on, if we live in In respect to Him, to God, then He gives men wisdom and He gives men understanding and He gives men enjoyment and that life is valuable and what do we do today does matter because it has eternal repercussions. It is important if we live our life in the light of eternity and in the fear of God. The conclusion of the whole matter, Solomon said, was to fear God and to keep the commandments. So we are to shun the winds of secularism that teach us that the only thing that we can get out of life are the toys that we acquire, the comfort that we find, the money that we make, the power that we possess. That we're not going to find ourselves in living the leisurely life, the selfish life, or to live according to these fleshly desires. But rather, as a child of God, we are at war with these things. We need nothing that the seculars has to offer to us. We need to add nothing to our faith, because in Christ we have everything that we need. I love the verses from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says His, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and by His virtue. We've been given everything that we need through Christ. His divine power has re- revealed to us by the glory and by the goodness of God. He's revealed Himself to us. And we partakers of Christ. He has given us all that we need. By which, having been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Think of the children of Israel. They were giving great and precious promises. That God was going to be with them. That they were going to inherit the land. But no promise like we've been given in Christ. Nothing like we've been given. That... Peter goes on to say, not only are we giving these exceedingly great and precious promises, but that we are partakers of the divine nature. That the, the, that God lives within us when we believe the gospel. The person of Christ lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't become God, but God dwells in us. Just like God dwelt in the tabernacle and God dwelt in the temple, now He dwells in us, the believers in the true church. He lives in us. He's given us everything that we need. What more more would we desire to add to our faith? Our verse of Scripture for this morning is Romans chapter 6 and verse, verse 5 which says that if we, in fact, had been united together in the likeness of Christ's death, believers, Christians, we are united in the likeness of Christ's death. Just as Christ came to die for our sins when we believe the gospel, trust in Christ, and our sins are forgiven through our repentance and our faith, we are related with Christ in His death when we believe. And then, not only related to him and his death, the promise is given to us that we shall be also united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Resurrection. As a matter of fact, other verses of Scripture teach us, uh, teach us that when we believe in Christ, not only do we die with Christ, but then and there we are already seated with Christ, in Ephesians 2, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ, a glorious truth. We need to add to the faith. Get out of here, man. We don't have, need to not add anything to our faith. The Bible says if we are without Christ, that we are sinners, then we are related to our father Adam, and that we are dead in sins. He is your federal head. You are related to him. But when you are in Christ, no longer are you in Adam, but now your head is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now being partakers of the divine nature, Christ living us, having died to sins, we're made alive unto God, we are partakers of the resurrection life, and we have this absolute surety that someday we're going to reign with Christ in a resurrected body, and we shall live as Him, have a resurrected body as unto the Lord. It's glorious, folks. You see... It's not that we've just embraced some teaching like Confucianism, Buddhism, say, oh, this is what we follow. No, we serve the living God who has manifested himself to us, comes to live within us, and we are in direct relation to him in this glorious union with him. Living with him we have absolutely nothing to add to our faith. Yet this is what we see the children of Israel to do: doing. Serving another God, worshiping another God, worshiping a graven image, and yet at the same time, Aaron trying to impose upon them that this is a feast of the Lord, offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. You know what so oftentimes happens? When a person adopts some spurious belief, when a person is caught up in some type of false doctrine, what else always follows? A sinful lifestyle. And that's what we see here. Look with me, if you will, in verse 6. The latter part of that verse. And the people sat down to eat and drink. See, they were feasting. There was no doubt drunkenness. And then the Scripture says, and they rose up to play. Well, What's going on here? They weren't just playing bingo. That's not what this text means. But this, the, the, the word here in the Hebrew means that they were involved in what is no doubt an idolatrous type of fertility cult as they worshiped this in all probability, worshipped the fertility god, Apis. They were eating and they were drunk and they were engaging in in all kinds of immoral activities in order to worship this false deity. That's what this word rolls up to play means. It's also translated to indulge in revelry. All these things that they were doing. They were indulging in the false worship of this calf. Even to the point point of in all probability extreme sexual immorality to the point of orgies. Doing all these things to give credence to this pagan fertility god. And the scripture says there in verse 25... Of our text, that when, when Moses came down off the, off the mountain and he saw that the people there were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to the shame of their own enemies. You see, they were going wild, they were running wild, they were just uh, out of control. A lifestyle that was not to be expected at all by the people of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we looked at these verses uh, last Wednesday night. I'm going to go over them just briefly here again. Uh, The Apostle Peter here says that for the believer, we've spent enough time, enough, whether that was... We came to the Lord at a very young age and we came to the Lord at an older age, whatever that time period was. That was enough time living like the Gentiles lived in all of their lewdness, he says. And this word lewdness is a word that is directly related to the word play in the Hebrew text. It means an unbridled, unrestrained, sinful type of behavior. We spent enough time living as the Gentiles live. We spent enough time in revelries, meaning any type of sexual immorality. He also mentions there in that text, we spent enough time in the past in former lust, drunkenness, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, just like we see here in Exodus chapter 32. Does not the Scripture say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That you who have died to sin, you've put on Christ, how can you live any longer in that type of sin? No, we're to break from it. We're we're to reject the voices of this secular age. The Lord who said, I, the Lord your God, who has called you, is a holy God. Therefore be you holy in all that you do. In verse 4 of that same text in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says there that the pagans, the unbelievers, will think it strange that you as a believer do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. MacArthur makes a, a note there. I appreciate it. The word dissipation, mean, he says, is as a huge crowd running together in a mad, wild race. A melee pursuing sin. You see... The unbelievers, they think it's strange that we're not in this mad race, this mad uh, dissipation, this excess of immorality as they look at us. These things are not fitting for the people of God. They're not to be named among the people of God. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things were written to us for our examples that we should not lust after the evil things as they did and that we should not become idolaters as were some of them. And he quotes this very verse from Exodus chapter 32 in verse 6. That they were written that we might not live as they had lived. Well, again, I don't think that anyone in here is tempted to be engaged in fertility-type cult worship to a false god. I don't think anybody is. But at the same time, we're still tempted by the spirit of the age. In subtle ways, we are tempted at every turn to turn away from the the true God and to look to something else that might give us a moment of pleasure. No, no. We're to turn away from these things. We're to keep our eyes on the Lord. When we're tempted to sin against God by the sin of impatience, we're to remember His glorious promises. We're to remember that we absolutely need nothing to add to our faith, that we are complete in Christ, that we have all that we need for life and godliness, and that we are to... Shun, turn away from anything that may look like an idol. Anything that we might esteem uh, greater than God for even a passing moment, anything that we are to place before God, then these things are to become an idol and we are to turn away from them. Well, when Moses came down off the mountain, God was furious with the children of Israel. And he burned in his anger to the point that he was ready to wipe them out. And Moses stood before the Lord, a beautiful picture of Christ, as he interceded for the people of God. Even to the point of saying, I am willing that you would block me out of the book of life if you would save these people. And he pleaded before the Lord the terms of the covenant. That Lord, you have given us this great promise that you were going to make unto us a great nation. That you promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you were going to build unto us a great people. What would the other nations think if you were to destroy your people within that laugh and mock and and ridicule us. And the Lord relented at the wrath which He had said that He might bring upon the children of Israel. And yet when He came down, when Moses came down upon the mountain, some of the people continued in this this pagan uh, aspect of worship, worshiping this false god. And Moses cried out, Who is on the Lord's side? And many of the Levites came forward and they took their swords and they went forth in judgment, killing 3,000 that persisted in their wickedness. The Levites killed them. You know, isn't it amazing when you read things like this that so many people today wince at church discipline? Yeah? Yeah? But you see, we must understand that the Word of God says judgment begins with the house of God. It begins with us. We're to look to our own needs, our own sins before God. The Scripture says if we would judge ourselves, and we would not be judged. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we see this so often times in the Old Testament in the New Testament. When people who profess to know the name of the Lord live contrary to the will of God the whole time living the life of a hypocrite sinning with a high hand and God kills them. Many accounts of that in the Old Testament and accounts of that in the New Testament. But rather live in such a way that we would face the judgment of God how much better it would be to live as Moses did. When they came down from the mountain and Moses met with the people and they had come to terms and the people said that they would follow the Lord their God. Moses got away to be with the Lord. Look there, if you will, at uh, Exodus chapter 32. Excuse me, Exodus chapter... um, 34. I'm sorry, I'll get it in a minute here. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, 33. <laughs> 33 with uh, verse 17. Moses was a man that the Scripture says refused to indulge in the pleasures of sin, but chose rather to suffer with the people of God. You see, he could have embraced all the secular teachings of Egypt as he had lived there for 40 years and was ingrained with their thoughts and belief system, but yet in the midst of that horrendous pagan culture, he kept his eyes on the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord there in verse 18, in the midst of all this turmoil, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, okay, Moses, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. And I will place you in the cleft of the rock. And you, but Moses, you can't see me in all of my glory. I will place my hand in front of my glory. And you will able to just get a glimpse of my backside as I pass before you. Moses desired the glory of God. And sure enough, uh, God placed Moses in the cleft of the rock and His glory passed before Moses. Now we're in Exodus chapter 34, about verse 5. And there God revealed Himself to Moses and who he was the glory of the Lord passed in front of Moses and the, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord and this is what he says in verse 6 the Lord the Lord God merciful and gracious long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and he bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. What a glorious sight that must have been. God revealing himself to Moses. And when God reveals himself, he proclaims who he is, his very nature, his attributes, what is like, his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his kindness. He revealed this in his own glory to Moses. And when he came down off the mountain, the Scripture says that his face... Look at, look at uh, verse 30. And so when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near unto him. Brothers, instead of living in such a way that we are culpable to the judgment of God, how much better to live to seek the glory of God, to trust God, to be patient, to not turn to these vain idols of this world, but to trust God and to seek Him and seek Him alone. In 2 Corinthians, you may want to turn there with me, the closing verse to look at. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul picks up this narrative of Moses coming down from the mountain with his face shining. Notice what he says concerning Moses and concerning us, the believer. But he says, But we all, the Christian, the believer, with an unveiled face. Now, the Scripture says that Moses had to put a veil over his face when he talked with the children of Israel. Partly because they were afraid, but partly because that glory which Moses possessed was a fading glory Depicting that the glory of the old covenant was fading away and that the children of Israel might be saddened if they saw the glory of God fading from Moses. So Moses kept a veil upon his face when he talked to the children of Israel. And then when he went into the tent of meeting to commune with the Lord, he would remove the veil. The apostle Paul here says, "But all of us when we look to God, when we look to the, the glory of God, we stand before him with an unveiled face." and we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. This is the glory of Christ in this new covenant age that we live in, right now in the here and now as believers, we look at God in Christ and we look at Him in all of His glory. And as we continue looking to Him day in and day out, the Scripture says that we are transformed into the the same image. And what is that image that we now, right now, tomorrow, next week, next year, what is that image that we're being? changed into. Well that image is the, the glory of God according to Hebrews that the glory of Christ is the express image of the Father and the brightness of his glory. That's that's why when Jesus said to Philip, If you have seen me, you have seen my Father. Right now we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we look to Him and His Word, that's what we're doing right here, right now. We're beholding the very glory of God as we look to Him. As we, as we look at Him for who He is. And we are transformed day in and day out by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why then, in vain, do we look to anything to add to this faith? So now, right now, we, we're here. We, On this earth, yes, we live in the horizontal, we live in a secular age, but by faith, we keep our eyes on the Lord. We walk not by sight, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The Apostle Peter says, Though now, though now, we do not see Him. Ah, but... We see Him through eyes of faith, but we do not see Him literally, do we? Though now we do not see Him, yet we believe in Him and we love Him, and we now rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Man, yes. We are no longer under the headship of Adam. We are now under the headship of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need nothing to add to our faith. We've died through our sins. We've been raised up with Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature. We have everything that we need for our life in godliness. We are complete in Him. We need nothing to add. We have the glory of God manifested to us. We are partakers of the divine nature. We go on from glory to glory as we worship Christ day in and day out until that time when He calls us home to His eternal kingdom. And then we shall see Him as He is. We will be able to look upon His glory. But right now He says, "Walk by faith, trust Me. Keep your eyes on Me. Shun the things of this flesh and believe my promise. Although He may tarry, we remain faithful because God is faithful to each of us. We behold His glory now and we look forward to that time when we will behold His absolute glory in eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Your majesty and your glory help us to be people that say to you through eyes of faith show us your glory. We have forsaken the things of this world and we look to you, Father. Deliver us from ourselves. Deliver us from this evil age. Help us to be faithful to you, realizing, Lord, that you have gone to prepare a place for us and someday soon you will come back and receive us unto yourselves. We look forward to that time. Father, I pray today also, if there's anyone here who does not know You, anyone here who has not seen Your glory, that You would bring them to faith and repentance. That You would give them eyes of faith and a heart of understanding so that they might leave their sin, embrace Christ, and be forgiven, and have this glorious hope that we as believers have. Father, Your Word has gone forth and I pray that this Word will continue to work in our heart this coming week. We pray these things in the holy name of Christ. Amen.